When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So unlike the rest of the world who usually takes the first week of the new year to look back at the previous year, Matt, contrarian that he is, always looks forward and he writes a blog post. So we get to do a podcast and we're going to do a podcast on his blog post on some issues he's looking at. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the first episode in 2023 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with my co-host Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive into the compliance weeds. In this podcast, we take a look at some of the issues that Matt and I are following and intend to look at for 2023, including corporate governance, FCPA, the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, PCAOB, and from the SEC. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Before we get started with our podcast, a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode in 2023 of Compliance Into the Weeds, as always, joined by my co-host, Matt Kelly. Welcome, Matt. Hello, Tom. Good to be here and Happy New Year to everyone. So unlike the rest of the world, who usually takes the first week of the new year to look back at the previous year, Matt, contrarian that he is, always looks forward and he writes a blog post. So we get to do a podcast and we're going to do a podcast on his blog post on some issues he's looking at. So Matt, you want to just go through the list because a lot to unpack in in all of these, and I can't really think of a better way to start than how you started it with the SEC greenhouse gas rules that may. Be- uh, yeah, so, so I do try and pick these specific items that are worth watching for compliance burden audit professionals. And I do think probably the biggest thing that's going to happen this year is the SEC's final rule on greenhouse gas disclosures and disclosure of other climate change related risks, which is allegedly going to come sometime this spring. It was supposed to happen sometime last year, but the proposal was so big, so complex. I think reportedly it was the longest and most complex SEC proposal ever. It's almost 500 pages long. It took so much time to sift through people's comments that we still don't have a final rule. And I suspect we are going to see it sometime this spring to give everybody a good six or eight months to get their heads around it before you have to start complying with it, I would suspect, in early 2024. But I think it's going to be quite telling about what is in it, who's going to challenge it in court, which it will be challenged in court, what will Republicans say about it, either in Congress or at the state level, which they will do. And there's going to be an awful lot of action there. Although I think for most corporate filers, the big questions for you at the compliance level are, number one, Will you need to scale Will the SEC scale back required disclosures of scope three greenhouse gas emissions from your supply chain? That's going to be an onerous thing. It scares a lot of people. And maybe they will rescind or curtail some of that. 
And will they rescind or curtail some of the audit requirements that are also in line for these disclosures? Um, which, again, is going to be a possibly expensive and complicated undertaking that audit firms love because they would get to bill you more out billable hours. But a lot of companies are they're a bit daunted by this. So is this something that moving over away from the government over to the private sector, that financial institutions, wealth management funds, hedge funds and others not only have been pushing, but have been pushing in a way that gives us some concrete ways for companies to measure and audit and report these findings? Where investment funds are pushing, and a lot of them are, including the largest in the world, BlackRock, usually they wind up saying, we want disclosures based on the climate change, the Task Force for Climate Change financial disclosures, the TCFD, which is a terrible acronym, but it is a framework that companies could use to disclose their financial risks arising from climate change. And a lot of banks and a lot of hedge funds or private equity funds that think about these issues and want to know what the companies they are investing in, what their exposure are, they want to know based on that framework, either that one or the International Sustainability Standards Board, the IA, the ISB, which also got its feet up and stood up last year. Those are the two frameworks that I think we're going to see people coalesce around for what are we actually supposed to disclose? What is the actual framework we're supposed to use? Probably one of those. Not all investment firms are demanding that companies do this, but a fair number are and a fair number of large ones are. But I think increasingly we're going to see that those are the frameworks you would use to comply with these demands, whether they come from the SEC or not. And the SEC's climate change rules specifically, that does cite the TCFD framework. And maybe we'll the, should add that Europe already has a larger sustainability disclosure requirement. They just adopted at the end of last year. That one's based on the ISB framework. So... There, there is a body of knowledge here about what we want to do. And I think in 2023, we're going to see more companies starting to do it. Matt, your next topic was the PCAOB. And yes. if I could just look back into 2022, this was an agency that was either under the radar, was retrenching, or perhaps other, until about the last six weeks of the year. Yep. And they came out with some of the most dynamic announcements I've seen from a regulator in quite some time. So if we discard the first 11 months out of the year and just focus on December going forward, I think there's a whole lot there. And where do you see all of this going in 2023? I think that this is going to be where we see a lot of rubber meeting a lot of road in the audit world, which does have a lot of relevance to compliance officers because either you might have some internal audit duties or risk assurance duties, or you might be working hand in glove with your internal audit team, and they, in turn, will feel pressure from your external auditor, who is feeling pressure from the PCAOB, which for many years was a deeply dysfunctional agency. And finally, at the start of 2022, they had new leaders at the PCAOB who basically cleaned house. They had an awful lot of spade work they needed to do around proposing new standards, investigating and taking action against some pretty egregious audit firm misconduct. We had more penalties assessed by the PCAOB last year 
than in any previous of the 12 or 15 years the PCAOB has been around. They're proposing new standards. They're revamping their inspection process. They are ramping up their enforcement. And their chairman, a woman named Erica Williams, very clearly takes this job quite seriously. So I'm going to look to see what new proposed audit standards will they now put into effect this year? Will they take even more strenuous enforcement actions against audit firms for any number of reasons? What would they do with, say, for example, FTX and its collapse, the big cryptocurrency trading platform, and its two auditing firms that you know, what were those auditing firms doing as FTX apparently plundered the billions of customer dollars and customer assets for personal investments and all sorts of cockamamie fraud? Really, that's all FTX was. Where were the auditors? We don't know. But now I know that they are going to be having conversations with the PCAOB. And I'll be curious to see how actions like that happen. This clearly is an agency with a very big appetite to be taken more seriously and I think we're going to see them trying to hit those notes throughout 2023 to make an impression on people. Could we just look back to the announcement around third-party confirmations, and could you oh, tell us what that was and why that caused such the kerfuffle, and maybe why compliance needs to start listening to these announcements? So this was a bit of an odd surprise, is that the PCAOB has proposed, not adopted, a new standard for third-party confirmations in financial audits and how external auditors would try to get those third-party confirmations of financial data. And in its language, in the proposal, the PCAOB says that the internal audit firms or internal audit teams cannot participate in third-party audits or third-party confirmations because of the possibility that the internal audit team might intercept or modify or amend some of the data that they receive from the third parties. Internal auditors really hit the roof over that language because they took it pretty much as a personal insult that how dare the PCAOB think we would ever sully our reputation as auditors even though we're on the internal side by participating in a fraud. And they published a rather unhappy statement. And you don't see the Institute of Internal Auditors publishing statements like this very often, where they said they were deeply concerned that this language implies that they might be involved in these sort of unseemly activities. And it all but ended with saying, and the horse you rode in, Vaughn, PCOB. They were not happy with this one bit. But it, it raises a good question about how do external and internal auditors work together? And there is a separate standard for how external auditors can work with internal auditors, what internal audit can and cannot do to help with the financial audit process. And it might seem like it's a almost a comical thing that internal auditors are feuding with the audit regulator over an audit standard. Like, how esoteric can we get? But it does raise some pretty thoughtful questions about what is the proper role of internal audit and how independent are they? And if they really are independent, then the PCAOB should respect that. Next up, you have the FTC, but not the FTC regarding antitrust or anti-competitiveness issues, but data privacy. And I was particularly intrigued by this because I talked to several privacy experts towards the end of 2022, and they believed that privacy, data privacy, will overtake data protection as a more significant issue on the board level. 
So I was really intrigued to find out your thoughts around data privacy from the FTC enforcement perspective or perhaps rulemaking perspective. Yeah, so this is something where we saw a couple of enforcement actions in the latter half of 2022, where the FTC went after mostly online businesses about poor data protection practices they had allowed in their operations for years. And the FTC stepped up and took action against them. And part of the settlements would include some pretty extensive and precise reforms and remedial action that these companies have to implement. And my take is that if you read these consent decrees closely, you can see that the FTC certainly has some thoughts about what good privacy protection programs should look like. And so if you, listener, are involved in privacy protection at your company, you should start thinking about, okay, this is what these other companies got in trouble for. These are the reforms that they now have to implement. Perhaps I should implement those practices myself first so I don't wind up on the wrong end of an FTC enforcement action. A lot of it is not entirely shocking. It involves steps like having a clearly defined person designated as the chief information protection officer, whether you call that person the CISO or the chief privacy officer or even the chief compliance officer, it doesn't matter really, but you need a clear person who is qualified and empowered. There's certain rules around policies and procedures that you should have in place. Sometimes they get pretty technical around when you should have multi-factor authentication. And we see more and more regulators getting into this level of the weeds, so to speak, around privacy programs and remediation steps that companies need to take. And I think that companies should look at this and start to get ahead of that. The alternative is to be something like what happened with Epic Games just at the end of December, where they were fined $520 million for privacy protections for how children were using that Fortnite game, which my kids play and I do not. So I don't know much about how Fortnite works, except that there was a lot of loose attention paid to how children interact with others. And that is a big no-no in data privacy. If you're dealing with minors, there is a host of extra concerns that have to be put in place. Fortnite did not have them put in place. $520 million later, Epic Games is now making sure Fortnite has those in place. So I don't think the FTC is going to let up on this. We should look to see how the FTC is communicating its desired information protection standards, either through continued enforcement or maybe, one could hope, for a longer, more thoughtful policy document, the FCPA Resource Guide from the Justice Department, but the FTC doing that sort of treatment for privacy. That's what I would like to see. And I have no idea if we will or we won't, but Clearly, there is a big enforcement appetite with the FTC as well. Lena Khan, we know you listen to this podcast, so we hope you pick up on Matt's request for a very thoughtful policy document. Matt, next you moved into two areas around anti-corruption compliance. And the first was the Oracle FCPA enforcement action. How do you see Oracle playing out or perhaps not playing out in 2023? And why are you watching it? I, because I don't know how it's going to play out. And that's the thing to watch for. So for those who don't fully remember, back in, I think it was September, the Securities and Exchange Commission sanctioned Oracle for FCPA violations in India, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates. And this was the second 
FCPA enforcement action that the SEC had imposed against Oracle for pretty much the same kind of offenses. And they involved third parties. And I think, Tom, we did a whole podcast on this back last fall when it happened. But what did not happen was that the Justice Department didn't also announce its own enforcement action for the same offenses on the criminal side, which is usually how we see these things. The Justice Department and the SEC announce hand-in-hand joint settlements. Not all the time, but usually. And we don't see that here. Why not? Because maybe the Justice Department is working on its own FCPA settlement against Oracle for these offenses. And if it is, then, okay, Oracle's a recidivist. And we talk a lot about how recidivists should get more punishment or they have to have remarkable remediation to avoid that. What would an enforcement action from justice tell us about that idea? Or maybe we're not going to see any. Maybe the Justice Department thinks there's nothing there. Maybe the department is going to be very forgiving. But again, that tells us something. Why not? Why isn't there any offense like that? I thought sanctioning recidivists was supposed to be important. So I don't know what's going on with this case. And Tom, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts, but I think whatever might be happening there would tell us something about how the department is handling recidivist cases because we don't have a lot of them yet, but Oracle is one. The thought I have here is to look perhaps to the ABB settlement because one of the conclusions I drew from that settlement, series of settlement documents was I thought the department communicated well with the compliance community about why AB as a three-time FCPA loser, the first time ever, they still received a discount off the minimum fine and penalty, and we're not required to have a monitor. And you and I batted around the entire putative self-disclosure, whether they should have tweeted it or not, at some length. But the DOJ put a lot of thought into communicating to the compliance community why that issue was so important and how I thought it really set the tone for the entire enforcement. If the DOJ gives us that sort of presentation with Oracle, I think it could be very helpful. My fear is that they'll get a declin. If they get a declination, it will be a declination with a one-page letter. We decline to prosecute, and we get nothing, which does not answer any of the questions you have raised or the myriad of others. And we'll be left in the dark once again with Kenneth Podleet saying we're going to prosecute recidivists. Yeah. I hope whatever they do, they communicate as thoughtfully as they did with the FCPA settlement. Matt, the, ne- the next thing you pointed to was something you have talked about, frankly, several times in 2022, which is additional information from the Department of Justice in the form of new enforcement policies, new procedures for companies to use. We started hearing about this with the Monaco Doctor or the Monaco Memo. Where do you see we might be going in? Could it lead to an eventual update, update, or update to the update of the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. What the department has told us is that they are preparing or updating policies about voluntary self-disclosure of misconduct. All sections of the Justice Department are supposed to be either updating their guidance on that, or if they have no guidance on it, they are going to write some. That's been said publicly by several different justice officials that guidance is coming. They have also said that there is going to be more guidance around the selection of corporate compliance monitors. They are reviewing and updating their policies for that. What exactly does that mean? 
I don't know. I am not entirely sure what the policy would be as opposed to the written or oral discussion that the department has given in various speeches over the last couple of months. We have been told that there will be more guidance about how prosecutors will evaluate a company's use of compensation clawback policies. Another one where the department has said that's really important that you exercise them, but we don't have actual guidance about what that means, just that guidance will be forthcoming. So we've got guidance about this and that and the other thing. I would like us to see that guidance sooner the better. And I do wonder if we're going to have so much guidance on so many different subjects would it be easier just to spruce up and reformat or refurbish the guidelines for an effective compliance program, which were last updated, I think, in 2020? I don't know what the critical mass is or what that evaluation thinking is of the department about when you go from policy documents to a whole brand spanking new piece of a new guidance template or whatever you want to call it. But maybe we'll just see a brand new set of guidelines entirely. The next two really deal with what I'm going to call corporate governance issues. And one is more general and then one is really company or even person specific. So we'll start with the more general, which you call the rise of the ESG controller. What is an ESG controller and where do you see this fitting in or even the need for it? I see this as the human resources corollary to a lot of these ESG compliance trends we're talking about. If you're going to need to disclose in SEC filings your greenhouse gas emissions, you will need to be sure that what you're putting in the filing is accurate. If you're going to be making sustainability disclosures per the EU's new sustainability disclosure directive, you will need to be sure that those disclosures are effective, they're reliable, they're accurate, they're complete. When we already have seen the SEC start to give comment letters to companies, you said this in your nice fancy sustainability report, but you said this other thing in the 10Q. Can you reconcile those discrepancies? We have not yet seen specific enforcement actions, but it raises the question of who is going to be in charge of making sure that these disclosures that are non-financial, but are important, are subject to securities law risks and regulation and liability, who makes sure that these disclosures are accurate? The ESG controller is my shorthand for the role that could do that. And I have seen increasingly a lot of companies, larger companies, having their corporate controller somehow involved in preparing these ESG disclosures. That kind of makes sense. The corporate controller has had a long and important role in making sure financial disclosures are accurate before they go into the 10K or the 10Q or some other filing. Why not use that expertise for non-financial data? That is also now going to be in the same setting. Some large companies have this. I know Google has one. I know Halliburton has one. I know Bank of America has one. Some other companies have lower level people like a Sox ESG analyst. I've seen that. That was advertised by Dick's Sporting Goods just the other week. They're looking to fill that role. So I do think that as we suss out who is going to be in charge of ESG compliance, and we could talk about that for many podcasts, this sort of role I think is going to become more common and a bit more structured, that it is a corporate controller type of person but they're not overseeing financial disclosures. They're working on ESG disclosure processes and data. And I'll be curious to see how that plays. And Matt, for your final issue or event that you're looking at is the wonderfully named the Corporate 
excuse me, the governance comeuppance of Elon Musk. So no doubt channeling your inner Orson Welles, what do you see as potential comeuppance for Mr. Musk? And I'm going to preview it by saying it ain't around. I think that I put Elon Musk last because if I put him at the start, I would have just written all about Elon for 4,000 words and given myself a script. He is a terrible executive. He's a brilliant visionary. And I drive a Tesla and I really appreciate how he said, this is what Tesla should look like. But he didn't found Tesla. He has been a hit and miss CEO of Tesla, mostly miss, especially on the company's share price, which has declined by more than half in 2022 because he has been preoccupied with trying to buy Twitter and then not buying Twitter and then going ahead and buying Twitter and then turning Twitter into this managerial dumpster fire. So Elon really is out of, he's clearly out of control at Twitter where there's nobody there to tell him what you are doing is stupid and impractical. But he is apparently so consumed with Twitter that he's neglected his day job as running one of the most important companies in the world, which Tesla is, because we need more electric vehicles. And he has turned out, or Tesla has turned out, some really great cars. But the processes around Tesla seem to be sketchy. There are a lot of regulators investigating discrimination, investigating safety problems, racial harassment, sexual harassment. Some of Elon's personal judgments are just astonishingly bad, like fathering two children with the senior executive of one of his other companies that he runs, SpaceX. Elon is a, and he is a mess because neither Tesla nor Twitter have a board that would actually stand up to him and say, you, CEO, you're terrible at what you're doing. Fix it or we're going to fire you. There's no governance mechanism there to force that sort of conversation at either of these companies. And thousands of employees are suffering from it. Millions of investors are suffering from it. And somebody somewhere needs to put a stop to this reckless behavior of Elon. And It really is an object lesson in why governance matters, why we have boards in the first place, and all of the chaos that can reign if you don't have these things in place. And Twitter and Tesla don't. So I'll be curious to see, does anybody anywhere at either of these companies finally do something about this? Or will any of the regulators take action against him as he seems to be just blissfully blundering through all sorts of messes and pushing the very boundaries of security and privacy law here in North America, in Europe? As I said before, I could go on all day about what a mess this is that Elon is creating. Is it finally going to change in 2023? So my reference was to the Magnificent Ambersons, and if you've never seen it, Watch it for the comeuppance. But 600, over $600 billion in about shareholder value lost for Tesla over the past year. The Is the Jay Clayton pronouncement that we can never find Elon Musk because he's too important guiding the SEC forever? It doesn't look like he's too important to Tesla now because he seems to be spending all his time at Twitter. And Tesla's share price has gone into the tank. So I think that was a terrible precedent for Jay Clayton to set back then. It didn't help anything here because we should have taken action against Elon Musk long before, back in 2018, when he first ran into trouble with the SEC, by basically saying that Elon Musk was too big to sanction that only let his reputation 
achieve even bigger, more swollen and undeserved overproportions. And now it really could be a big deal if you had to fire him from, I don't know, from Tesla. I don't necessarily know who would run Tesla. What sort of CEO succession plan is there? I'm willing to bet there isn't one. I don't think that the feckless board at Tesla is given any thought to this. And where are we going with any of these companies? Elon Musk clearly has no idea what he's doing with Twitter. And he is so preoccupied with that that I think he's forgotten that he has things he should be doing at Tesla or SpaceX, for that matter, or whatever that little weird Neuralink thing is that he runs with the brain chips and the monkeys and investigation. Yeah. What are we doing here? Nobody is above the law. And that is certainly true in securities regulation as much as it's just it's true in common sense. And we haven't had enough of it applied to Elon Musk. Well, that seems like a pretty good way to end this episode, Matt. We really had a lot of fun, and we will definitely be visiting on these issues more throughout the year. So Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I'm pleased to announce that Compliance Into the Weeds won a 2022 Communicators Award in two categories for the best co-host and for best business podcast. So thanks to all of our listeners who supported us for the Communicator Awards. I hope you will join Matt and I again next week where we take another deep dive into the compliance weeds. Finally, if you thought about starting your own podcast, please contact me. I'd love to help you either uh, help you produce your podcast or put you on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. The award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.